Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. You're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Brittany Spanos, with Bob Sheffield, and special guest Maria Sherman, who's a senior editor at Jezebel and has a new book coming out in July called Larger Than Life, a history of boy bands from NKOTB to BTS. Now, Maria's presence may give you a clue, given the book, of what today's <laughs> subject is. thought it was time to talk about the phenomenon that is BTS, the South Korean boy band that has almost literally conquered the world and use that as a segue into the larger and kind of fascinating history of boy bands. But let's start with BTS who have a new album out and Rob wrote a really fascinating review of that BTS fans actually liked, which is very rare for anything <laughs> ever written about BTS. And I think that that's in this case, something to be proud of uh, their albums called map of the soul seven Rob gave it a four star review, but before we get to the album specifically, what I wanted to ask maybe Maria and Rob and Brittany, if she wants to jump in, um, why and how did this happen? How did a boy band who a lot of their music is in Korean do something that no one has really done in America and elsewhere? Uh, Psy broke through and he was kind of a, an anti-boy band guy from from South Korea when I when I interviewed him he defined himself entirely against the kind of uh, pop factory stuff in in South Korea but here we have BTS conquering America how did this happen I wish I had a really concise answer and if I did I would probably have a net worth of about 700 million like <laughs> Hitman Bang who uh sort of created big hit entertainment BTS's company but I think there's sort of a variety of factors um whenever I think of BTS I think this is like the sort of one of the final evolutions of a boy band this was always supposed to sort of happen they play to certain successful boy band tropes and they also sort of unravel them I mean they have more members but they all have distinct personalities there's a certain fluidity to their music that allows them to sort of traverse a lot of different genres in a way that I think boy bands have been a little bit more tunnel visiony and of course they provide a certain level of accessibility which is always the sort of boy band fan desire to be able to interact with their the object of their obsession um and I think we're at a time where I don't think uh, American listeners or Western pop fans necessarily need to listen to English-based music in general. I think maybe we have Despacito to thank for that, but it's it's been pretty evident in like the last, I guess, the later half of the last decade that um, English language is no longer a priority or a necessity. Absolutely. And I think also we have one of the most open-minded generations there's ever been in Gen Z. And I think they they keep showing that over and over again and the most multicultural generation. And so that all makes sense. And also I always think about, you know, just on a very basic level, like we're in 2020 when you imagined the future. I think this is one of the things that people kind of imagined a more international approach to, to pop culture. Maybe take us through some of the steps that led us here as far as their success. Sure. Uh, I could do a very abridged history of K-pop if we wanted to sort of bring us to to BTS. Please, go for it. Go for it. Okay, so um, in the early 90s, that's when we start to see the sort of birth of Korean pop music. Um, That happens after South Korea becomes a democracy. There's a very clear political history that also sort of gets us to BTS. And and someone else should write that book because I would really appreciate reading it. And a bunch of guys sort of realize that there is a market for pop music. People are interested in it. Hip-hop becomes a thing in in the sort of mid-90s. And in 1999, South Korea decides that they're going to allocate 1% of their finances to popular culture to bring money into the country. And um, that obviously worked very well for them. And in the mid 
20, or in, in 2010, this guy, Hitman Bang, who I m- mentioned earlier, decides that he wants to create a boy band that sort of challenges a boy band trope in that they are very vocal politically, sort of, uh, m- maybe more socially politically. They are um, sort of going to speak out against societal ills. They are very sort of nuanced in their approach to love songs and, and sort of like emotional vulnerability. And that becomes... BTS, um, and, it, and it takes quite some time. And uh, there's bread of the internet. It, it's really kind of confounding why they were the sort of success story, and it's something I still try to wrap my head around. Because for a while, I thought it was going to be this group called Big Bang, who sort of emerged on the U.S. market in 2006. The reason I think BTS sort of continued to explode was the fact that they continue to sort of show up in America, which is something a lot of K-pop boy bands weren't doing at the time. They were more focused in like the Chinese music market or Japan, which is the sort of second largest music market to America. And it's sort of been like a slow build. I mean, they've been a group for seven years, which might kind of strike people as as um, sort of unusual. I mean, they definitely broke the boy band sort of trope of only existing for five years. Um, yeah. And, and now they're here and they own us all. And uh, take us through some of the members, because there's a lot of them. Yeah. Um, so RM is the leader, and he's the leader because he is the one who speaks the most English. That doesn't necessarily mean a uh, front man, though you, you could be open to interpretation. I really don't want to upset ARMY right now, so I'm really trying to be sort of nuanced in, in my description of it's, them. I commend you for getting any words out in the face of the fear of the BTS ARMY. It's a, it's a little intimidating, but I love them and their enthusiasm is unrivaled and they're so organized and, and I do really love and appreciate them. Uh, there's Jimin, who is sort of the dancer of the group. I mean, they, they all are excellent dancers. That's pretty evident in, in watching like 30 seconds of them do anything, but he's, he's sort of that um, face. There's Jungkook, who is the sort of the cute one of the group if we were going to use western boy band tropes in korean it's makne i apologize if i'm butchering <laughs> that word uh there's suga who is one of the rappers j-hope who sometimes i think he's my bias i think his smile could stop traffic uh and then there's <laughs> jin who is considered the visual which would be like the better looking of the group which is insane because they all look like angels how do we differentiate between the cute one and the and the best looking one uh, the cute one is the youngest one. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh, okay. Like the bait. Okay, okay. So like twenty-two versus like twenty-five. Um, <laughs> and uh, there is V, who I he sometimes does more of like the like R and B vocals of the group. He's also what I like them all. I don't know what I'm saying. Um, and I think I got them all. Did I? Sugar, J Hope, Jungkook, Jimin, Jin, V, R M. And and what you might have caught from that description is that like even though in Western boy bands we think there's the heartthrob, the cute one, the bad boy, the older brother, responsible one, um, the mysterious one, in South Korea, um, all of the boy bands do have very distinct personalities, but they don't adhere to the same sort of tropes. Um, the way that they're described is usually based on what their specific skill set is, and I think that kind of allows them to take on many different roles. One could be a bad boy in one song, and, and sort of the like um, balladeer in in the next. Rob, you pointed out that these guys are, are pretty intellectual for a boy band, it seems like. For a boy band? <laughs> I wouldn't say boy bands are not intellectual, but these guys have, uh, <laughs> they're very conceptually committed. They're, you know, they're the kiss of boy bands, basically. It's <laughs> an all-star team of superheroes. Each one has their own identity, their own following, their own persona, and they have moments where they shine solo and then moments where they collaborate you know, like some moments on this album where the kind of Peter Chris sings, you know, with the string section, 
phase of, of BTS's career. Also, like Kiss, they have an army. And like <laughs> Kiss, they're really into heavy concept albums. This one, Map of the Soul, based on, uh, on the work of Sting's favorite German psychologist, Carl Jung, who also inspired Synchronicity. Not by... F- by no means the last point of contact between these two very interesting stories, staying in BTS. <laughs> a lot of musical fans of, of, of young, uh, you know, Billy Corgan, it, it goes on and on. It's, uh, you know, a lot of synchronicity there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they're very much a unique phenomenon. It's really kind of astounding how they have surpassed really anybody who might have set a precedent for them. You know, Psy was somebody who had a, a novelty hit eight years ago. This is like a completely different sort of phenomenon. Yeah, this is a, a full bonding between audience and band, uh, and any cultural differences clearly don't matter whatsoever. But Rob, what what else do you like about them? Because you obviously like you you really like them, you really love this album. What 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 draws you to them as like you yourself, <laughs> like personally? Like, what do you like about them? The songwriting they're they're just so expansive. The the way they hear music and the way they theorize music and conceptualize about music in their songs. Uh, one of my favorites on the new album is Moon. It's, you know, that classic boy band trope, the love song to the audience, where it's it's ambiguously either to a single person or to the fictive girl who stands in for the mass. You know, it's it's basically it's it's like their version of, you know, the new kids, you got it, the right stuff or Backstreet Boys, Larger Than Life or the Beatles. Thank you, girl. That's the way that BTS do that kind of fan love song except theirs is you know they're floating through space they're just the moon orbiting you like you are the earth they are the moon it's a really beautiful approach let's hear that for a second and Brittany, we're going to get to the larger history of boy bands but where would you place BTS in in that history. How do you see them? Who would you compare them to in, in terms of, of groups you've liked in the past, uh, without getting into uh, the extent of your fandom of, of BTS? I mean, I I think that what we've seen over the last, I mean, kind of like moving from New Kids to NSYNC to One Direction to BTS is that we've seen kind of this ideal of boy bands where everyone has a role. Like has as Maria pointed out, like there's a skill, there's a a moment that they each get to have. I think we kind of, especially with One Direction where they all were singing, like we were able to kind of each hear their voices, each see their personalities. We're seeing BTS where like they each kind of, the intensity over each of them, like there isn't one who's more talented than the other ones. Like there isn't one who like has more parts, you know, that type of thing. But also kind of this return to dancing too and the visuals and the performance. I mean, kind of with the Jones Brothers in One Direction and the mid-aughts, like there was this idea of placing boy bands outside of the kind of general pop arena kind of dance moments and kind of bringing it back to that old schoolness of we're going to have this huge performance and this choreography and everything, which is really amazing. Yeah, and there was a there was a song on the album that you pointed to, Interlude Shadow by Suga, and it, it seems pretty introspective. I guess you that seemed like a standout for you. Yeah, it's it's introspective. As, as Maria pointed out, that's something about BTS that people really you know gravitate to. That they're very introspective, very personal, very very sharing, and that. Interlude Shadow, it's Suga's really great showcase moment on the album where he's he's talking a lot about his doubts and his, his inner struggle. I want it on mine. I want to be rich. I want to be the king. 
Maria, you were pointing to the political or at least sort of sociopolitical messages in their music. There was a really interesting medium piece about that that I was trying to pull up, pointing out that people kind of, a lot of people miss that, especially because some of their messages make the most sense in a sort of particular South Korean context. But what are their most kind of essential political messages? That's a great question. And I think some of it is if it isn't sort of explicit on a record, they're very vocal about it in interviews now, maybe more so than they have been in the past. Um, I think a lot of it is is sort of like surrounding this idea of empowerment, but kind of returning to a word I used earlier, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Like even their Love Yourself era of a couple years ago was sort of um, founded on this idea of I want to feel better. Um, uh, there's, they're always kind of skirting around this like mental health conversation, especially as it applies to younger people. But how do I get there? The sort of struggles inherent in sort of living through pain or experience or, or trauma or whatever that may be, and and that's kind of foundational to the group. It just sort of um, evolves with each concept, each comeback, and each record. I think a really great example of that on this record is. Um, we are bulletproof seven or part seven. They've had songs dealing with this theme in the past. The intro samples like an earlier song that deals with a similar idea. BTS is supposed to mean bulletproof Boy Scouts in Korean. It all kind of returns to this idea of sort of being aware and, and vulnerable to experience around you and, and sort of being triumphant in the face of that sort of um, being bulletproof. I guess would, would be the sort of the easiest way to describe that. Um, and those songs also kind of act as, as fan service to to the army, uh, to army, excuse me. Um, they'll often sample previous work that they did, which is kind of like a Easter egg and an Easter egg. It's, it's very um, oriented for people who are obsessive and dedicated to this group. So the medium article I was talking about was by a guy named Elliot Sang, and it was really smart and interesting. He pointed out that uh, on one song called Dope, RM raps the phrase sample generation, apple generation, and that's a pejorative label that refers to South Koreans who've given up on, on courtship, marriage, and children in favor of career success, which he says, I'm quoting, which has become increasingly hard to come by in a country where more than 10% of youth are unemployed. And in the song Dope, they're voicing their support for, for a generation facing that. So it's interesting. I, I don't even know how many of their fans in America are totally aware of some of this contextual stuff. And for all I know, they totally are because fans tend to research everything. Sure. And I think maybe the best example or the most explicit is that when they did the Billboard cover story, I guess, last year, maybe the year prior. Um, the way that they sort of approach like injustice it, it, towards youth is kind of like class conscious in a way that is very exciting because I'm not sure it's ever been so explicit with um, with a boy band. Wow, yeah. Pr- and, and it is very specific to... Um, to the sort of experience culturally of, of being South Korean. I know that a, not all Western press, but a lot of Western press, a certain amount of Western press tends to focus on the K-pop industry in terms of scandal mm-hmm. and in terms of pressure. And I'm sure I've read pieces that make a legitimate point that there seem to be some real problems with the K-pop system. However, fans of K-pop really object to that focus. So h- how do you all see that? Are you... Yeah, um, I, I think it's a kind of a terrible problem. It's incredibly exoticizing. Um, it, it teeters on on racism. Um, but I, I think what uh, I think it's just sort of um, 
because it's so scandalous, I guess it's it's just this like clickbait marketplace. But I think what needs to be sort of remembered is that like K-pop d- doesn't happen in a vacuum, and it's kind of taking from a Western tradition of of how pop business has has operated in the past. There have been shady players in in boy band history, uh, which we can nah. <laughs> which we can of course touch on. So yeah, I, I think it's sort of like uh, approaching it with blinders, and then sort of flattening uh, the entire k-pop world you know it's not even a genre it's not just boy tan boy bands it's not just bts um it's it's much more massive and complicated than that yeah that's the fascinating thing too is like a lot of those articles don't talk about that history Mm -hmm. of kind of the exploitation of a lot of pop groups especially young pop groups over history Mm -hmm. like they just kind of look at it this one thing like it's just in south korea when actually you could write the same thing you know if you I mean, I guess it's that thing when people say, well, here's an article about the United States written as if it was a foreign country when we have an election go bad. And it's like in the, you know, in the provincial yet proud country of the United States, like they're very proud of their of their very distributed election system where no one. And it's just mm-hmm. this kind of thing where it's just if you put that lens on it, you can make anything look that way. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I think that about, you know, you could do the same thing with, you know, with like in their, their scandalous boy band industry in America where there's been multiple issues of exploitation going back to the 1960s. I mean, you could do the same thing I guess which which doesn't you know in my mind erase what may be real problems in sure. in their industry but it does suggest that that shouldn't be the only lens by any means we're looking through and, and in general I would say that I think people who pay only casual attention to this sort of BTS phenomenon one of the main things they might see is this frustration from the BTS army in the way that people write and talk about them in general. Mm-hmm. I do get that sense that they, they just feel that most articles, and that's why it was so un- unusual that they were actually like, this Rob Sheffield article is great, uh, because they never say that. Right. So what's beyond what we just talked about, what's the disconnect there? I think they feel as though their appreciation is is misunderstood, which is also sort of just a universal boy band experience of, of having this sort of thing, this appreciation be marginalized. Yeah, and I think we'll get to that in uh, as we talk about the history. But Rob, what else about BTS? What makes them different? What makes them? Why, why are they so beloved? What What is it about it? Something about uh, just I think their expansive music and the way that they in, in incorporate all their their individual personalities into you know a, a bit of rap, a bit of balladry. You know, like uh, that song Moon we were listening to before. I like that because it sounds like. It sounds like Radiohead ripping off the Smiths is what it sounds like to me, which, you know, is my idea of a good time. And uh, so, like, the way that they have these really kind of, you know, audacious musical and, and conceptual movements that they're always, they're always moving on to, they just deliver a lot of bang for the buck. What do you make of their production? It's I really like the sleekness of it. I've seen people react negatively to especially this new album that's one criticism i've seen that it's just it's too slick it, it covers up the personalities but to me the smoothness of it is uh is actually pretty pleasing but i don't know how you see it yeah i don't agree with that particular critique of the production but you know people are always people always will say that about you know about boy band pop it's it's something people have, al- have always said about boy band pop they said it when the beatles were playing it they said it when the jackson five were doing it something about that and its audience and it goes back to what you were talking about before with people you know, sort of looking down their noses at 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 a supposed scandal association with the genre, and and that's just kind of like the condescending way that that people have traditionally looked at at uh, at boy band pop and and its audience. Um, we wanted to move on to a sort of broader history of boy bands, but one more thing on BTS, which is just we were talking in the break about the sort of system that a lot of uh, K-pop 
acts go through of training and stuff. I think people find that really fascinating. So just fairly quickly, if you could kind of maybe expand upon that. Yeah, so um, the abridged is that if you (laughs) would like to become a K-pop idol, you go through a training process in which you um, sign a contract with a company. There's a big three company. BTS themselves are on a smaller company called Big Hit, which allows them a little bit more freedom and autonomy than some of the other acts. That's a conversation for another time. But essentially, you'll live in a dorm with a bunch of other trainees or apprentices who are sort of like idol hopefuls, which is just a K-pop pop star. And you'll practice dancing and singing, um, media training, etiquette, all these sorts of things to just sort of learn how to be a pop star. And um, sometimes you'll go in with a group thinking you'll debut with them in three years and it doesn't happen. Or sometimes it'll be a couple months and you kind of adopt a different concept or you become a soloist. It's just sort of you go through the training process and then the big wigs who know what they're doing will figure out what the place is for you. It's so funny because last week on the show we had Brian and Eddie Holland, the Motown songwriters on, and there's so many commonalities there all these years and all these miles later i love that kind of thing but let's take it all the way back rob what were the first boy bands where did the boy band idea start what is ground zero for boy bands maria oh well i was kind of hoping rob would begin because (laughs) i think even though i wrote this book it still seems kind of contentious and i'm like i sometimes i think it began here and sometimes i think it began elsewhere um i would say of the like sort of modern experience i like to start with new edition because that gets us to new kids on the block backstreet and sync and that sort of thing continuing on is the bulk of my book but i think you could kind of trace it back to like the 1920s and 30s barbershop quartets just the sort of idea of a male vocal group harmonizing dressing the same sort of performing especially for young women and sort of growing a like an audience from there um, but i'm curious to hear what rob and Brittany have to say i've always i mean beyond the barbershop quartets mm-hmm. i've always felt that like the beatles were the ground zero of what boy band fandom and what a boy band looks like in general um just you know the matching suits mm-hmm. and you know the hair and the you know being cute and girls screaming like that's too big requirements for any <laughs> any pop group generally but i think like the beatles were are to me just like the the beginning of what we have seen continue on for boy bands overall and i, I think that's I'm your s- position rob yeah i was gonna say frankie lyman and the teenagers yeah. you know like from the 50s definitely like taking that sort of you know very much to like sort of a very modern boy band template to you know like the 50s doo-wop sort of sensibility but with the Beatles, exactly, like that you have in Paul McCartney, you know, the perfect example of, you know, an unrepentant, he has never lost that true to his boy band spirit enthusiasm for, you know, for singing his songs for girls. Brittany blew my mind with this amazing clip of Paul McCartney playing the White House a few years ago yes. with Obama in the audience. Yeah, it, his they were, daughters. he was being honored, I believe, for something. And yeah, Malia was a huge fan of the Jonas Brothers. And so the Jonas Brothers sang Drive My Car. And it was just, I mean, Malia was like so excited. Both Malia and and Sasha were very excited, as everyone should be, to watch the Jonas Brothers cover Drive My Car. (laughs) But Paul was also so thrilled. He was singing along. He was like in the audience bopping along. It was very cute. Very cute. They really nailed it, too, actually. Yes, they nailed it. Like, also, a very difficult song to do. That's, you know, something I loved about that clip and that actually made me like think a lot about Paul McCartney and the mm-hmm. boy band spirit is is that that he keeps looking over to see like the Obama daughters like he's like yeah you know I know the president likes this song yeah I know Michelle likes this song but he's really 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 into the idea that you know that these teenage girls like this song that's what he does every time 
you see Paul McCartney live, he does Hey Jude, and he has, you know, the na-na-nas, and he has a part where just the women sing it, and, you know, that's his favorite part of the show every night. You could tell that's why he wrote the song, that's why he still does it. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about Franklin Lyman and the Teenagers for a second because I think that there's really something to that. I mean, they, they were like singing, dancing, very cute. It was a whole thing. I mean, weirdly, Billy D. Williams just told me a story about being mistaken for one of them in front of one of their concerts uh, as a young man and being mobbed by their insane fans. So there was this like, they had, there was that fan energy. There's an interesting sort of precedent. Yeah, there. and that they were authentic teenage boys who were marketed as this is the real thing, authentic teenage boys. Everybody remembers Why Do Fools Fall in Love, but one of their really big hits was I'm Not a Juvenile Delinquent, which was, you know, like a phrase that was just making the rounds. At a the real time. AJ McLean kind of vibe there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and of course, it, it also has the boy band arc of a very sad story where they had all their money stolen from them. You know, uh, that part of the boy band arc applies to them as well. But also, like, you, you get like so many of those great harmony groups that followed, you know, Smokey Robinson, the Miracles, like Smokey always said, like, that was like the template for the Miracles and, and what became the Motown vocal sound. But, you know, I think, you know, they were really like original and sort of a break with with other doo-wop around them. People might contest this or, or see a difference is, you know, the thing about like New Edition and a lot of these, a lot of the groups, although I'm to be honest, I'm not super clear on the origins of New Edition, but a lot of the, the modern boy bands were assembled you know, by some Spengali figure, whereas, you know, some of these earlier ones, perhaps less so, whereas other people like the Sex Pistols were also assembled by Spengali figures. So it doesn't, it doesn't denote anything about the musical quality, but it is just sort of a band. I love that. (laughs) Absolutely. Sid Vicious is a peak boy band type. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Also, the Ramones were such a boy band who wanted to be a boy band. They wrote Blitzkrieg Bop because they loved hearing the Bay City Rollers Saturday night on the radio. Mm. And they said, this is what we want to do. They were actively trying to be a boy band. Before they were the Ramones, their name was Spice, <laughs> which I love because they were the Spice Boys of punk rock. And matching bangs, very important to oh, yeah. a lot of boy bands. Yes. Yeah. And, and, yes, and their fan song, like Little Ramona, they were really into singing about girls dancing to them. Hey, thanks for dancing to our song. I, yes. So does being assembled, being assembled is not... Uh, a necessary part of the the boy band uh, criteria. No, that, the yeah. Beatles weren't assembled the way that you know, say, you know, the Beach Boys being assembled by the, the dad or the Jackson Five being assembled by the, the monkeys, dad. Yeah. Yeah. The Jonas Brothers, Hanson. Yeah. I mean, yeah. siblings, but you know, They're, assembled they, by fate. They, they were assembled by <laughs> DNA. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. that's an the, exception. The Beatles yeah. had had you know they formed themselves before finding any Svengali, which is you know very strange thing about their story. Yeah. Yeah, and though a lot of boy bands have a Svengali type, it's not a requirement. I think that's the thing when people think, or maybe casual fans, not boy band obsessives like the people in this room, might think of boy bands as kind of operating based on some sort of formula brought down by Motown or, or not Motown. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that answer. And boy bands continuously challenge all of those sort of tropes. Um, they can assemble themselves. They can have more than five members, as we've seen in BTS and et cetera. I think the thing with the Svengali thing is that so much of what how a boy band is defined is not only by sort of the idea that they are playing to a very specific audience that people do not want to care about or think of as authentic, but they also are almost always tied to exploitation, which again was like the conversation with BTS. But like, I think the idea that a boy band are comprised of young men who are playing for a specific audience who are being, you know, not paid or 
being worked until they cannot work no more in that entire context. But yeah, I think that's sort of the idea of like what a boy band is. And that is obviously a very problematic definition that I think a lot of people have carried through, but it also is a very true reality for a lot of bands. What were some other pre- 1980 acts that you would characterize as boy bands. So Bay City Rollers, I know, I realize I know very little about Bay City Rollers. You have so much to look forward to. <laughs> they were, they were fantastic. They, they chose their name. They had never been to America, but they said we wanted, they were, they were of course Scottish boys. If, if you've never heard of the Bay City Rollers, uh, they were Scottish boys who wore tartan and they had the matching bangs. Um, Derek, Les, Eric, Woody, I love them all. I love the rollers. Um, they they actually decided we want to be popular in America, so we should name ourselves after a, a city in America. So they they took a map of the U.S. and literally stuck a thumbtack in and said we're going to name ourselves after whatever town we just landed in. And it was Bay City, Michigan. Which, needless to say, they had never been to. Nobody had ever been to. But you know, the rest is is history. If if uh, Ken Arlick was still at the Grammys, we could have a Bay City Rollers tribute with like BTS. And, uh, <laughs> oh my God! Watch him come out of retirement, please. We're begging, Ken. I, I sing the body Bay City Rollers, but if, 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 <laughs> but you can hear it like in in that sound. You you can hear it was very much a song designed to be sung by a school bus full of girls, which it was every morning for years. It, that song was like designed for that, and that's. A, that's why it's a classic. What else pre-1980 before we move on to a, the more modern era? Well, you've got, uh, I, I don't know which ones like Maria had in mind. The Jackson 5, of course, like who had a very long run. They had a Saturday morning cartoon series. Long after the Jackson 5 were not the Jackson 5 anymore, they were still huge. Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, consider. Temptations. I consider Kiss a boy band. I mean, they that's a boy band. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the Eddie Trunk phone lines just, ran, just, just, just exploded. But yeah, I mean, that case could be made. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. the Silvers, do you remember the Silvers? I they were not. They were fantastic. Silver spelled with a Y, needless to say. Yeah, Boogie Fever was their song. A lot of the same people who... From had been with Motown involved with the Jackson Five, moved on to do a disco version with the Silvers. I've got the Boogie Fever. I think it's going around. It was a (laughs) pandemic, proto-pandemic disco hit. (laughs) This is weird. We're we're once again uh, crossing over with with last week's episode, which is fantastic. Do we can we get Boogie Fever up? Do we have that? Man, we are hearing some excellent music today, no doubt. So, modern era, after 1980, but before New Edition, what do we have? Well, New Edition is like 1978 into the early. Oh, I didn't realize it started that early. Okay, my bad. It's like it's like 82 is is when it starts. It's Maurice Starr in Boston. He's explicitly he's like rap is huge. The Jackson Five were still the best thing ever. I'm going to do you know a rap slash R and B version of the Jackson Five. And Candy Girl was like one of those mind-blowing, you heard that single and it was like, okay, this is how all pop music's going to sound for the next <laughs> 10 years, which turned out to be true. <laughs> Obviously, Bobby Brown, the breakout star, but what, what else about New Edition? They really captured, as you said, the template for the boy bands of going all the way up to, you know, the 
pretty recently. So what was that template? Um, I, I think a lot of it actually kind of goes back to this Bengali conversation because they were um, they already existed. They were kind of singing locally, doing Motown covers, trying to make some make some coin. Um, and then eventually, Marie Star sees them at a talent show and decides he's going to give them the record Candy Girl, and and sort of the rest is history. But um, I, I think they're sort of behind the music tale is is incredibly boy band. Um, they work with Marie Star. He decides that he wants. More allegedly, in case he's listening to this, there's di- different perspectives on, yes, on yeah. how that break happened, but uh-huh. but it's definitely like a thing where that became really the template for the modern boy bands, which were you know so huge. We forget the early '90s boy bands in the new edition era, but you know it, I miss Linear. I thought Linear were great. I thought <laughs> High Five were brilliant. You know, like oh, was, we should we shouldn't forget about Menudo, by the way. Yes, uh, very. Uh, they started, I believe. Just slightly before New Edition, so maybe maybe talk a little bit about yeah seventy seven the, the year yeah. boy bands broke. Uh, <laughs> 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 Thank you. Uh, yeah, so uh, Meduto comes out of Puerto Rico, much like me, and they're started by another Svengali type, this guy Eduardo Diaz. Um, he decides he wants to do a boy band because he also loves Motown. Everything goes back to Motown, but he decides he's going to do boy bands a little bit differently, and he's going to have like a sort of rotating cast and crew of boys that he gets rid of as soon as they reach the age of 16, which seems a little cutthroat, but I think it also sort of um, at least a foundation for like how a lot of K-pop groups used to operate where it's like, all right, this person's not pulling their weight, they're out. And it also sort of made, um, it ensured that he had like a perpetually uh, <laughs> replenishing like that crew, I guess, of of boys to use. There are a few exceptions of, of guys who got to stay, and one of them is Ricky Martin, of course. But yeah, sort of similar thing. Hired a bunch of songwriters out of Europe because boy bands always sort of break in Europe first. And we knew we were going to get there. New Kids on the Block. <laughs> New Kids on the Block New had kids a bunch block. of hits. <laughs> this, is, this, is why, this is why Rob said I was, was offended when I said intellectual for a boy band because he was thinking of the heft and depth of the well, yes, of every I member of, of New Kids on the Block. Yes, I was. The erudite uh, yes. members of New Kids on the Block. But in terms of also like New Kids on the Block, uh, they're clearly antecedents for this, but in terms of the five boys with the five mm-hmm. personalities. Mm-hmm. Like, that was, like, such a hugely, you know, there's the big brother one, there's the bad boy, there's the, you know, like, there's the Donnie, Danny, and Jordan, and John, and Joey of every group mm-hmm. for years afterwards. And, mm-hmm. and Maury Starr. Who, and Maury Starr. <laughs> Maury Starr splits with New Edition, and then in a kind of a saying the quiet part out loud of pop history is like I'm going to make a white version of that. It's usually not quite so so one on one but the but branding was so yeah. awesomely explicit. Yeah. Um yeah. just like New Edition, uh New Kids on the Block dedicate their first album to their moms and then they dedicate the second album to Maurice Starr. And <laughs> I, I loved it like and the third album to New Edition's mom. <laughs> but like yeah, just like the precision of like, no, going to do the exact same thing. And, you know, Ray Parker Jr. writing Mr. Telephone Man mm-hmm. for New Edition. That is some classic, <laughs> classic 80s boy band edition. So we've gotten up to New Kids on the Block. And of course, one day I think Lou Pearlman realized that New Kids on the Block had their own plane and decided to get into the boy band business. And that brought us... In uh, sync and Backstreet Boys and other things, and I, you know, I guess if you want to hear the history of the Backstreet Boys, we have an episode 
that you can look up uh, where Brittany and I talked with AJ McLean. That was actually quite delightful, if I recall. So you can definitely dig into that one. But, you know, Instinct Backstreet Boys, how do we see that now? What was their influence? What was their impact? How do we place that in the whole history of all this? I think that they kind of trump the entire idea of what a boy band is. I think that their success was so monumental, not just for boy bands, but in in the music industry. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, like the release of No Strings Attached in 2000 was one of, I mean, remains one of the biggest albums of all time. It was the actual peak of the pre-Napster music industry, of the pre-digital music industry. Yeah, it was like a million in like a day or so. It was like really just, Mm -hmm. I mean, insane numbers that no one could imitate after and no one had even attempted before. And I think just like the, it was obviously the peak and Lou for all of the terrible things he had done. The one smart business move he made was to create the own competition for his own band, mm-hmm. pushing them in Europe, pushed Backstreet Boys in Europe before he moved them to the US, had them working with Max Martin, who is now and remains one of the biggest songwriters in pop history. His influence, I mean, every like, Gaga just worked with him. Like, it was like a big thing for her to not work with him. Like, it was, you know, because he works with everyone. Created NSYNC to be the competition of Backstreet Boys. They also were pushed in Europe. They were competition against each other in Europe. We always can, can you imagine because <laughs> because I, I think I think AJ talked to us about like literally hearing in sync mm-hmm. <laughs> rehearsing in the next room and it's like what the you know yeah <laughs> like the sinking in your stomach and it was <laughs> kind of like a similar sort of like incubation period where they were like they were touring around Europe they were massive over there and then all of a sudden just like the time hit perfectly where they can break in the U.S. and then once that happened like they were just. They were everywhere. Clearly the inspiration for Pete Wentz signing Panic at the Disco to his own label. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Also a boy band. (laughs) Also boy bands, yeah. Can't argue with that. But I mean, yeah, their influence, I mean, the way that we think of boy band songs is heavily influenced by what Max Martin wrote for Backstreet Boys and NSYNC um, and what they performed, how NSYNC and Backstreet Boys performed, what the tours looked like. That's what we think of, of boy bands overall, which is it completely trumps everything that happened before them and everything that happened after. And the Jonas Brothers, jumping ahead, were fascinating hybrid of like sort of a Beatles-esque boy band with a boy band-esque boy band. And they've turned out to be one of the more lasting of the genre and, mm-hmm. and seemed to be going on to a second act that's, uh, I guess you said they're releasing another album this year, maybe. Yeah, I think they're just like are starting to roll out a lot of music. I mean, again, like New Kids were the beginning of the boy band comeback, the man band era, Mm -hmm. where we see like they had incredible success. We see that it's both nostalgia, but also just like continue to put out products that their long lasting fans still love. Touring relentlessly, um, you know, they did it. Backstreet Boys were able to successfully do it. Jonas Brothers coming back a little bit sooner, were able to do in a way where they can still like get a number one song, their first ever number one song last year. So it's a... It's a pretty incredible thing to see them still still thriving. And I know you guys don't want to talk about One Direction. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that struck me about One Direction is as much as uh, K-pop seems to have sort of perfected the boy band in some ways, the, the, the choreography is like better than ever. And, the, you know, everyone is just so good at what they do. One Direction, we're very good at everything they did, but we're really not into matching and choreography. You know, that, that, was, uh, that, that was not their thing at all. And there were a lot of other things about them, obviously, that were innovative. Yeah, choreography, like skipping <laughs> choreography. It's funny to imagine if they had tried choreography. They did once. Yeah, I did. <laughs> the best song ever video. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is true. That is true. 
Yeah, I mean, they were just like, they kind of were just like five class clowns put into a band and then were like, sing. <laughs> Go on stage and do that. Yeah, rebellious but still non-threatening. Yeah. Honestly, Brian, it's very difficult for the three of us to get in and out of in one direction conversation <laughs> and the time remaining It's torture. To I deliberately tortured you. Yeah. You Trying have, to speak. You have about 45 <laughs> seconds to talk about one direction. <laughs> it's like, but... They're beautiful and they're perfect and we love them. <laughs> <laughs> I very much enjoyed the, uh, the the days I spent with them for a still never published uh, cover story. Uh, you have were, my email. They, they, were, yeah, they were they were leak uh, it. <laughs> I wrote like five very funny, if I must say, paragraphs for the beginning of it. Then they were like, "We're not publishing this." So I, I just have all the someday I have all the recordings and all the stuff. It was really fun. They're, they were great guys. They remain great guys. They they were remarkably unaffected by the madness around them. So. We end with One Direction. Uh, this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We we're talking about BTS and boy bands. And Maria Sherman's book, Larger Than Life. Yes. Buy it. Buy oh, it. Pre-order now. Oh, thanks, guys. Pre-order six copies, one for each member of New Edition, <laughs> plus Maurice Stark. Yes. All of your so, loved ones will also love it. <laughs> so thank you to Maria Sherman. Thank you to Brittany Spanos. Thank you to Rob Sheffield. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Those are always appreciated. But in the meantime, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord, we get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.